team, you might have noticed a refrain throughout the worship set this morning, the theme of grace coming up several times, and that wasn't unintentional. Uh, This morning we are starting in the book of Philippians, and uh, this morning we're going to be talking a lot about grace And uh, we are going to be going through the whole book of Philippians. Uh, It was a decision that we all kind of came to as well. Myself, Ricardo, Pastor Tim, and and, uh, and also the surrogate elders, too, just in discussion about what would encourage our church. And um, before we read the text here, I want to just ask, how would you know that Jesus loves you? How would you know that God loves you, that God has affection for you? Or how would you know either way what God's disposition is towards you? You know, we all know in theory that Jesus loves me, right, from the song. But but how would you know and how would you sense it and feel it? And we'll get that answer this morning as we dive into Philippians chapter 1. And as you turn there, uh, just a reminder that, that Philippians, as we saw from Acts chapter 16, which is the birth of that church, was born in the midst of difficulty and hardship, but also great fertileness to the gospel message. It was mostly a Gentile town, as far as we know, because there was no synagogue there where Paul began his ministry. It was a Roman colony, so everyone there had Roman citizenship, so it was a prestigious place. And some of those first converts that we saw were Lydia, whose heart was opened by the Lord to the gospel, and also the jailer. Uh, These are no insignificant conversion stories. These are key people. These are high-capacity individuals that God brought into the church. And so Paul held this church in high regard, and and he writes this letter of encouragement about 10 or 11 years after what we just read in Acts chapter 16 from house arrest in Rome, as far as we know, based on Acts 28. And we receive encouragement as well, as it was his goal to give encouragement to the church in Philippi. So, We're going to read the first 11 verses, Um, encourage you to stand as we read God's word. If you're not able to, if you have a kid on your lap, that's fine, but uh, I think it's good to practice. Let's uh, stand and read Philippians chapter one, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi with the overseers and deacons grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of God. And praise of God. Father, as we open up this word that you've given us through the Apostle Paul, by your Spirit's inspiration, we ask that that you would open our hearts to it, that you would speak through me to all of us what we need to hear to build us up, to help us to become more like Christ and grasp the enormity 
of your grace that you lavish upon us in Jesus, your Son. Lord, please eliminate me from this pulpit. Eliminate anything of, of me that, that is just my personality or um, anything that I would say that it would be wrong or, or in error. Lord, we just pray that Christ would be glorified. We pray that your word would be spoken free of distraction. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So just to look at the greeting real quick here. By the way, the title of the message is Grace and Peace. You see that in verse 2, he addresses them with grace and peace. And that really sets the tone, not only for this message, but really for the whole book. It's a book of encouragement. But just look at how he begins in verse 1. There's this affectionate language, right? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. First, the word servants there, he's addressing him and his, uh, his, his co-worker Timothy in the gospel as slaves. Literally, that word could be translated. There's slaves of Christ and there's saints in Christ. These servants of Christ, these bond servants, these slaves, it's because of their work for Christ that there is a community of saints in Christ. And so Paul puts himself on equal footing with Timothy, his son, his protege. And he also addresses the entire church, all the saints in Christ Jesus, Saint is not a special category of super Christian because all of the saints are saints in Christ Jesus. So if you're in Christ Jesus, you are a saint, a holy one, the word means. So he puts everybody on the same level. He also addresses the leaders in the church, the overseers, pastors, elders, various terms are used there, as well as those who hold the office of deacon as servants. So he addresses everybody. And then notice this cause and effect that he uses his slaves to build up his saints. How do we know that Jesus is for us and that he loves us? And we'll see this morning that he communicates his love and his affection to us through his ministers, through his servants, through those who pour themselves out in the church. Just like you see in verse 8 that we just read, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. It's Jesus loving the church at Philippi through Paul. And through Timothy. And so he greets them in verse 2. Grace to you and peace. There's this cause and effect again. Grace is the source of everything. This freely given, unconditional pouring out of favor and affection from God. And the result is peace. The Jews were accustomed to greeting each other. Peace, shalom, right? It was, it was a common greeting and it means just whole person well-being internally, externally, not just internal tranquility, but also peace with God, peace with one another. That's the effect of grace that we receive from God. From beginning to end, it's all from God. God addresses them and he doesn't say, hey, I got a problem with you. He, he addresses them first and foremost with grace and peace. This is God's heart towards his people, is that no matter where they're at spiritually, he begins by addressing them, hey, grace to you and peace Grace isn't just for unbelievers. I think we get accustomed to talking about the grace of God in a way that is only for when we're inviting unbelievers to believe the gospel for the first time. Right? When we're extending the gospel offer, when we're encouraging people to come to Christ in faith and repentance to receive forgiveness of sins, we talk about grace like it's just a one-time thing, like a flu shot that you get at the beginning of your Christian life, but then after that, it's just up to you to, to kind of grin and bear it. 
but he addresses the believers with grace and peace. And then notice that grace flows from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because another misconception that we often get is that the Father is the mean one, Jesus is the nice one that saves us, that interposes himself on, on our behalf to, to, to satisfy God the Father's wrath. And there's some truth in that. Obviously, Jesus did satisfy the wrath of God. But it's wrong to imagine that the Father is against us until Jesus turns him towards us. That's not the case at all. The Father initiates salvation. The Father and the Son planned this together. The grace that we receive from God is not just from Jesus as the nice one. It's from the Father and the Son. And of course, we know the Spirit is involved in that as well. And there's no difference between between Jesus and, and the, the fact that he's also God. He, he says God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not saying that Jesus isn't God. Right? There's two separate persons here. There's the Father and there's the Son, Jesus Christ. But when he addresses Jesus as Lord Jesus Christ, he's making that correlation there to that title that the Jews would have used often throughout the Old Testament period for God, Yahweh or Lord So he's identifying Jesus as God. There's one God in three persons, and all of them are active in our salvation. So to sum up where Paul goes with this, starting in verse 3, in this message, grace and peace, God pours out past, present, and future grace on his people through Christ so that we can persevere through the Christian life to his glory. God pours out grace on us past, present, and future through Christ so that we persevere through the Christian life to his glory. We even see that in the last line of that song that we just read, that that we're saved by grace and grace alone, that we'll slay our sin by grace and grace alone, that we'll run the race and we'll reach the end by grace and grace alone. And so the first type of grace that we see that God pours out on us, he pours out on us past grace. There's grace that we can look back on our lives in the past as believers and see that God was active. We see this in verses 3 through 5. The first point is the past grace of partnership. The past grace of partnership. You see this in, in Paul as he gives thanks for them. I thank God, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This is why we began with Acts 16 because you see the the events and the circumstances under which this church was planted in Philippi. And you see that Paul was immediately being brought into people's homes. And as he was being rejected out in the community, yet he found a hearing among these people. So how does God pour out his grace and peace on us? How do we know that God is for us? God pours out this grace of partnership. He binds us together in the body of Christ, in love, in fellowship, and on mission together. So first, Paul thanks God for them in verse 3. He remembers them all the time, verse 3 as well, and he rejoices in them in verse 4. He actually rejoices while he's praying for them. And we have to pause and ask ourselves, first, do we pray with thanksgiving in general? Right. When we pray, is it is it mostly requests? Is it mostly things that we want or are we actually remembering to thank God? Paul says later in chapter four, verse six, and everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
So Paul is modeling this. He gives thanks all the time, but not only does he give thanks to God in general, which we all need to do, he gives thanks for other Christians, which is something I don't know that we all do, is that we actually thank God for the Christians in our life. And he rejoices in it, making my prayer with joy, he says. So not only is he thanking God, not only is he thanking God for other Christians, but he's also enjoying it while he's doing it. He's doing this willingly. Prayer is no begrudging duty for him. It's a delight. And he's modeling this because Philippi was a church in need of unity and in need of joy. And you see this in chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. You see it in 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling and disputing, he exhorts them. And then in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, he addresses two women that were having a spat in the congregation, Euodia and Syntyche. And he says, I entreat you to agree, uh, agree in the Lord. So this is a church that needed unity and joy. And Paul models all of these things. And why? Why does Paul thank God for them? Why does he think of them so often? Why does he get so, such pleasure out of thanking God for these Christians that he knows? It's because of their partnership in the gospel. Verse 5. And specifically, he says, because of, God's, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Specifically, this is not just that they share this common faith. This is also financial partnership with Paul in his ministry. Think of Paul as a missionary. These individuals went from unreached to actually a supporting church of Paul's. Imagine you're a missionary. Imagine Stephen, Bethany, Camille. They go to Mongo, Togo, and they plant a church. And within 11 years, the Togolese are actually being one of their sending churches and supporting them. That's, that's the, the extent of the discipleship that's happened here. They've gone from unreached to supporting. This is a grace from God. God bestows grace on us by binding us together on mission. And this happened immediately. He said it was from the very first day. Recall that we just read in Acts 16, we saw that Lydia and the jailer both invited Paul into their homes immediately. They were real partners. They weren't just passive consumers of information from Paul as we often are. They were active contributors in ministry, in their giving, in their time, in their prayers. This is important for us. God gives us this grace of partnership. We are partners with one another and with those who go, with those who are on the front line and with those who are in the background serving secretly. Every role in the body of Christ has dignity. If we support those who go, 1 John 3.8 tells us that we are fellow workers for the truth. Right? You don't just have to be a goer, a missionary, a pioneer, front lines type minister of the gospel in order to be considered a worker for the truth. Jesus tells us that if you give someone like that a, a cup of cold water in my name, he says you won't, you won't lose your reward. You'll receive the same reward as that person. Paul regards the whole church in Philippi, you see this in chapter 4, verse 3, as, as true companions. The literal word there is yoke fellows. Imagine being yoked together. Two oxen, right? You're, you're in it together. You're in the trenches. Remember how he addressed Timothy at the beginning. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. They're equals, even though Timothy is his protege. They're equals. So not everyone is a Paul. Not everyone is a Timothy, right? Not everyone is a pastor. Not everyone is a, an elder or a deacon. 
There's a variety of gifts. There's a variety of, of capacities and skill sets in this room. There's a variety of roles in the body of Christ. But every member plays a part in the whole. A pastor once gave an analogy recently that I heard that was really useful is that when, when I go to a movie theater, right, and I, my eyes are watching the screen, you know, my, my eyes are watching on behalf of my whole body, right? My, my hands uh, may or may not be doing something with popcorn, putting it in my mouth, but as far as my hands know, the room is dark. My hands aren't seeing anything, right? My, my elbows are in darkness. The rest of the body doesn't look like it's doing anything, but my eyes are seeing the film on behalf of my whole body. And it's the same in the body of Christ, is that we don't have all the same ministry. Yet Paul writes to these ordinary Christians, and he says, I rejoice every time I think of you guys because you're partners with me. And you're partners in the trenches of ministry. There are no lone gunslingers in the mission of God. At least there shouldn't be. We have to acknowledge our interdependence on each other. And we should recognize this as the basis of our fellowship. Fellowship meals are awesome. As a Baptist, I love a potluck as much as anybody else. <laughs> but that's not the basis of our fellowship. The basis of our fellowship is our, is our shared faith, but it's also our mission together. Many times when we're lacking in solidarity together as the body of Christ, it's because we need to reignite our mission with one another, because we don't have much in common from a natural human standpoint, socioeconomically, culturally, right? There's, there's such a mixture of people in the body of Christ, not even just in this room, but look at, look at any church that's faithful. We don't have much in common from a human standpoint. But we need a combat mentality to bind us together, not a comfort mentality. If you've spent any time in or around military people, you understand that there's a unity, there's a brotherhood, there's a fraternal aspect to that community where you have your buddies back in the foxhole, right? You, you might have a disagreement and you'll sort that out, but in the thick of the battle, you have each other's back, period. And that's this grace of partnership that, that God has poured out on us by engrafting us into the body of Christ. Our mission is what unites us in these foxholes of life. And so if you've been coming here and just gathering, slipping in and out, you are missing out on this enormous grace of partnership and fellowship that God gives to his saints. Join a life group. There's a couple of them. Become a member. Don't just gather, but connect and serve. Be a part of what God is doing here. So God gives us this grace of, of partners in ministry. And he even counts us as partners in the ministry of those who go and take the greatest risks for the kingdom, which I think is just cool. But that's not the only gift that he gives. That's past grace. There's also this present grace that he talks about starting in verse 6. Verses 6 through 8, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. Again, there's that partnership language again, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So they stood by Paul even when he was being persecuted and resisted for the gospel. They could have left him, but they didn't. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. But I want to focus in particular on verse eight. There's also this present grace of perseverance that God outpours on us. This present grace of perseverance. 
So God's grace is what binds us together as a body on mission in love and fellowship. God's grace is also what begins with election in eternity past. God's choice of whom he would save. It enters into history in Christ 2,000 years ago. The grace of God grabbed you at your conversion. There was a moment in your life, if you're a true follower of Christ, that he grabbed a hold of your life and your heart. And he holds on to you now and all the way to heaven. It's 100% foolproof. There are no dropouts in this category of grace. Romans 8.30 tells us those whom God predestined, whom he, he also called, those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, he chose his people, he calls them to faith, he saves them, he justifies them, he adopts them as his children, and he brings them all the way to glory, and there are no dropouts along the way. This is also something that we saw in Acts chapter 16, right? Remember, Lydia, it said the Lord opened her heart in chapter 16, verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. We see that God is the one who initiates salvation. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, Paul writes to another church, even as he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And in Philippians chapter one, two, at the end of this chapter, Paul says, for to you, it has been granted that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So he mentions that we're all granted to go through trials, and that's actually a privilege in the economy of God, but that it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ to believe in him. Right? He assumes that they understand that their faith was a free gift from God. It's not that they woke up one day and they were smarter than everybody else around them, and they just decided, well, I know I'm a sinner and I need to do better. It's that they were running from God. And God took out their heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. The prophet Ezekiel gives us that language. God initiates salvation. God completes salvation. He who began a good work in you, he began it, he started it, will bring it to completion. He will fulfill his saving purposes, his his salvific purposes. Psalm 138, verse 8, David says, The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. So there is perfect continuity. Hear this. There's complete continuity between the work of the Father in choosing whom he would save and in the Father's work of election and the Son's redeeming work. And no one is lost along the way. Jesus saves everyone whom the Father chose. He doesn't miss anybody. John chapter 6 unpacks this beautifully. Feel free to turn there, but I'll read John chapter 6, verses 38 through 39. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven, not only to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 44, he says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. You have this language that, the, that, that Jesus knows 
who God's people are and he holds on to them and no one can grab them, no one can unsave them, and they can't hop out of God's hand either. John chapter 10, verse 27 through 30, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. To be held in the hand of Jesus is to be held in the hand of the Father. And he says, I and the Father are one. So this is the doctrine that historically has been called perseverance of the saints. This is the fact that all who are truly chosen by God will endure to the end in their faith in Christ. This is not the same thing necessarily as what we often use, this catchphrase of once saved, always saved. There's some truth in that. Jesus doesn't unsave anybody. He doesn't undie for his people's sins, right? But this idea of once saved, always saved. I, I spent a couple of years living in the South, right, in the Bible Belt, in, in one of the most Christianized, baptist towns. And you see that people approach salvation as flu-shot faith, right? That, uh, you ask them, are you saved? And their response won't be yes or no. It'll be, I done did that. <laughs> Words I've actually heard. I done did that. Um, that means I did that. But it, it, getting saved was something that I did, and it was over, and that happened, and so now I'm good. Right? It was an action that I took. God didn't initiate it. I did it. I walked down an aisle. I shook a preacher's hand. I signed my you know, name on a card, whatever that looked like. And so I'm good. And that's not what's being said here. Because remember, we will backslide and doubt. Nobody's denying that. Last week we looked at James chapter 5. And at the end of that chapter it says, If anyone is wandering and you bring him back, just know that you'll save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Right? What's the implication? You'll wander. You'll fall away. Possibly. You will backslide. It, it happens. You will doubt. I, I try not to get my theology from... Internet memes and images on the Internet, but sometimes I do. There's a particularly compelling image that I've seen where maybe you've seen it, too. There's a there's a guy. He's he's, he's going up on an escalator and he's he trips and he's falling backwards the whole time. And yet the escalator still keeps carrying him up and, and he keeps falling backwards. But eventually he gets to the top of the escalator. That's the Christian life sometimes <laughs> is that God is, is bringing us up to himself in spite of the fact that that we have this constant uh, pr- uh, propensity to, to pull us backwards, to fall back down. He's still bringing us up. Sometimes we'll fall away. Sometimes others will, will fall away and not come back. The longer you follow Jesus, the more people you can probably name off the top of your head who made a profession of faith and left the church, left Christ, and haven't come back and may not ever come back. We know that apostasy exists. It's a real thing. We're not denying that either. But 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out from us that it might become plain that they are not of us. The idea being that if someone falls away never to return, that they weren't truly chosen of God. That that's not the kind of faith that he gives, because he gives faith that does persevere to the end. If you remember from Jesus teaching the parable of the soils, right? The gospel seed goes out and falls on different types of soils, 
and sometimes it, it takes root in somebody's life and it grows and they follow Christ and there's this beautiful thing that happens. But we see in Mark chapter 4, there's some types of soil. Verse 16, they're the ones who are sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. So they look like they believe and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So there are a multitude of types of false faith. But that doesn't discount the fact that all who are truly chosen will endure in their faith in Christ to the end by the grace of God, not by anything in them that makes them better. And they're not just passively enduring, white knuckling their way through the Christian life. This grace that God gives is is a lifelong active pursuit of Christ in imperfect obedience The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints doesn't just mean that you will be passively white-knuckling your way through the Christian life. It means that God will grant you the grace to imperfectly spend your life following Jesus as Lord, obeying Him. And we might want to kick back on this and feel like, well, God's not respecting my free will, but, but how could the saints not persevere? Honestly, Jesus didn't die to half save people, right? He didn't die to have people drop out. He purchased not only freedom from hell, not only forgiveness, he purchased perseverance. He purchased us, as that song said, slaying our sin and running the race by the grace of God. That's what he died to procure for us. And this has a couple effects on the way that we live our lives as Christians. Let me just mention two of them. The first effect of this doctrine of perseverance is that we're active. We're not passive. We're not called to just sit back and say, well, God's in control. God's going to save me. And so I don't need to play any active role in that. Paul himself, who's laying this out there. I mean, he says to them, I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He knows that God will do it. But then, then in chapter three, verse 12, he says, not that I've already obtained or, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So because Jesus is holding on to me, Because he's not going to let go, because he's not going to lose me, I'm going to grab on to Jesus. Why not? Why not run the race with endurance, with perseverance? So we don't become active. We we, we don't become passive. Rather, we become active. The second effect is we're not discouraged. We're comforted. We should be comforted by this. You might not feel like you have a lot of perseverance. And let me just speak to those in the room who've been following Christ for longer than just a few years. Let me speak to those who've been walking in the Lord for uh, an extended period of time. You might not be at your best right now. You might be at a low spot. Spiritually, you might feel like a zero. But let's be honest. Aren't you becoming more like Christ day by day? Hasn't there been some progress? Right? If you truly know the Lord, can't you look back and see like, oh, he has been working in my life. He has changed me bit by bit, right? Rejoice in that. That's not an accident. God did that. Rejoice in what he's been doing in your life. It's interesting here, though. Paul says, I am sure of this. 
He says he's sure of this. We know that God's people will endure to the end. And then he says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all. He's, he's almost anticipating this question. How can Paul speak as though he knows that they're elect? How can he speak as though he knows whom God has secretly chosen? Right? Because everything that we just saw here, we know that sometimes people do fall away. We can't always tell the difference between somebody who's just having a bad season in their faith and somebody who's leaving never to return. How can he speak as though he knows they're elect? He was not omniscient. Right? Paul isn't getting direct revelation from God to know the, the, the content of God's secret decree. That's not what's happening. And it's not because the Philippian church was sinless. We know that's not true. It's not that they were so sinlessly perfect that it was, there was just no denying that they, were, that they were the frozen chosen. So how can Paul speak this way? How does he justify it? He, he justifies his certainty that they've received the grace of perseverance by their fruit. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And so he sees their fruit. They're partnering with him in the gospel. We, too, have to exercise this judgment of charity, by the way. This judgment of charity that, that insists on believing the best about other people. And I'll be completely honest. I don't always do this. Right? Jesus says, Matthew seven sixteen to judge people by their fruit. I'm good at that. I'm really good at playing fruit detective with people sometimes. But there are also moments in the life of the believer where we have to just take other people's professions of faith at face value. Or maybe faith value, you want to say. Sometimes we just have to have this judgment of charity and assume the best of other people, right? 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Love believes all things. That means sometimes we believe the best about others who claim to be Christians until we're proven wrong beyond the shadow of a doubt. That's hard. I don't do that. But that's what we're called to do. We're called to exercise the same judgment of charity. And Paul's certainty also stems from the fact that it's Christ's own affection in him that's poured out to them. In verse 8, I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Again, these people could have turned away when Paul was thrown in jail, when Paul was under house arrest in Rome when he was being chased around by the Jews and the Romans alike, they could have cut funding to their missionary, Paul, and they didn't. We see here that Paul is driven by a love for them that is Jesus loving them through him. Jesus has the same affection for us. I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ today, Christ has affection for you. He loves you. You are his. And the reason he won't abandon you halfway through your Christian life, the reason you'll persevere to the end is because of this affection for you. He signed up for this. You're sitting here today with all of your sins, all of your foibles. He knows what he paid for on the cross. He knows what he's getting into. He signed up for this. None of your struggles surprise him. God's grace is not only past in the grace of partnership. It's not only present that he's helping us to persevere but he won't leave us where we're at either. And he'll continue this work until finally the future grace of perfection. Third point, the future grace of perfection. And you see this in Paul's prayer for them, verses 9 through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more 
with knowledge and all discernment. So again, they're not just called to sit back and let God do it all passively. He says, because I have warrant to believe that you are God's true people who will persevere to the end, I pray that you would grow. Right? The first Peter says it to, uh, to, to make your calling and election sure. That's the same language here. God's grace sanctifies us through life in preparation for what? For this last day when we are presented perfect to God for his glory. This church was beloved, but it wasn't perfect. They were loved by Paul, but they still had room to grow. Right? We can all grow as well. We all have room to grow. He says, I pray that your love may abound more and more. They were already marked by love, but he prays that they would continue to grow in love with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of God. I just want to talk about some of these fruits that he prays for as we, as we wind down. In verse 9, he prays for love. So I was driving in the car with my son um, on the way to drop him off at kindergarten earlier this week. And uh, I asked him permission if I could share this, and he gave me permission. So I had had one of those mornings where I was just, I don't, uh, for whatever reason, I was just irritable. I was just cranky, you know. Oh, Alex, how are you doing this morning? Ugh. It was one of those mornings. Uh, it was a Thursday, right? So I think I was just ready to be done with the week. And um, so I had been, you know, kind of short with everybody. Uh, including my son, and while we're driving in the car, I just kind of turned and, and I said to him, uh, I, we were at a red light, I didn't turn while we were driving, but I, I, I turned to him and, and I said, said, hey buddy, I'm, I'm sorry, I was frustrated this morning. And he says, that's okay, Dad, I forgive you. And then he says, and if I didn't, I would be keeping a record of wrongs. <laughs> So he's learning 1 Corinthians 13 at his school. He's learning love keeps no record of wrongs. Well, I was convicted of that, too. I was like, oh, my gosh, how many people are I, am I keeping record of wrongs about? We won't tell you what happened at school later that day because it would be ironic. But anyway, <laughs> point is, is that in that moment, he had the moral high ground on me. <laughs> and, um, and I'm reminded that, that I can't keep a record of wrongs either. There's a friend of mine who does a lot of work in, um, he, he's got his, his PhD in systematic theology. He's done a lot of work on, uh, in counseling and trauma, and he writes and talks a lot about manhood and biblical masculinity. And he's kind of sketched out his vision of what it means to be a man. But he admitted at one point, he shared this, he said, you know, the thing that I've left out here is, is kindness, is love, actually. He was... He was interviewing um, someone who, who, um, whose name is out there a little bit. He's a writer, Justin Taylor, who remarked that we need to, especially those of us who love theology and who love all this doctrine, we need to consciously cultivate the Christian virtue of kindness. We need to consciously cultivate the Christian virtue of kindness. Very often, kindness ends up last on our priority list as those who love the Word of God. Somehow. I don't know how it happens. We can't keep record of wrongs. We need to abound more and more in love with knowledge and all discernment. Love and knowledge. Right? To, to walk the Christian life is to constantly be walking this knife's edge balance between truth and grace, between love and knowledge. Just like Paul in Ephesians 4 says that, that we need to speak the truth in love. These things go together and they're two sides of the same coin. 
But there's this tension to, to either focus completely on, on niceness without telling the truth or completely on being so abrasive in truth-telling that we forget to love our neighbor. We need to grow in knowledge and discernment so that we can win all the debates is not what he says. He says so that we can approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless. Approve what is excellent. Remember that later in the letter, he, he follows this point up. He says, finally, brothers, in 4 verse 8, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. He wants us to have knowledge, not just so that we can be the smartest person and have all these letters behind our name, knowing the Bible, so that we can discern right from wrong, so that we can discern good from great, so that we can better love our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. And all of this sanctification that happens day by day, little by little, sometimes one step forward, two steps back, all of this growth in fruit that happens in the Christian life, purchased by the blood of Christ, is not just cyclical. Your Christian life is not just a hamster wheel of spiritual activity. Thank God. It has a goal. It's heading somewhere. Blameless for the day of Christ. That's Christ's return. That's the day where in chapter 2 we hear that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the day in chapter 3 verse 20 where we'll see that our citizenship is in heaven and we'll receive the Savior Christ Jesus the Lord who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That's the day that we're being gradually set apart for, progressively sanctified for. There's this future grace of perfection that we'll receive when he appears. Christ is our reward. He is our prize. He is the goal at the end of the race. And so we want to be found fruitful and ready for him and persevering and growing in our faith. We want to do what he says in verse 27. We want to let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. When he returns, I want him to like what he sees in me. Not that I'm earning my salvation, but I, I want to be worthy of what he's giving me freely. And the last point here is just that notice the purpose of all of this grace, the future grace, the present grace, the past grace, all the grace and peace poured out from God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son, why? Why does God give us this grace of partnership, perseverance, future perfection? Verse 11, to the glory and praise of God. The reason salvation and all of its effects are free gifts from God that we receive passively and benefit from is because God gets all the credit. God is the one receiving all of the glory. Not only in the moment that I was saved, but also in my daily persevering walk of faith with him. Up until the day that I see him. God gets credit for all of it as the one who never forsakes his people. He pours out grace and peace on us. And he gets all the glory. So as we close, let's remember these graces. Let's ask for more of them, more of this grace of partnership so that we can experience love and unity while we're in the trenches together on mission, not just playing church, 
of being on mission together and we'll experience that grace of partnership. Let's pray for more perseverance and faith so that we don't give up, so that we continue to follow Christ. We continue to cling on to this gospel that we know saves us. And let's pursue fruit. Let's slay our sin by grace and grace alone. Right? Let's slay the bitterness in our own hearts, in our own midst, whatever it is, knowing that it's all of grace. We can only do these things by grace. We can do nothing apart from him. And it's all for his glory so that he gets credit at the end of the day. We're going into a time of communion this morning. And as we prepare to go into that time of communion. And Matt, I'm actually going to call an audible. I know I said I would lead communion, but I'm going to ask you to if that's okay because you were already planning on it. But let me just give one verse to transition us that direction as we get ready for it. Is that... In this message, we're seeing that, that there's grace past, present, and future. And as we come to the Lord's table, there's also grace in the past that we look back on and grace that's future. The Lord's table is a timeless piece of furniture. Because in 1 Corinthians 11:26, Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as we partake in this present moment of time, if you're a follower of Christ, if you confess faith in Christ, as you partake of the elements, remember that we're looking back on the grace that we've received. We're also looking forward to the grace that's in store. And we're enjoying this gracious celebration even now. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the grace that you pour out on us. We don't deserve it. And we pray that you would make this a sweet time of fellowship and communion as we proclaim your work in the past. We look forward to perfection in the future with you. And we celebrate in the present. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.